Good morning on this second Sunday of Advent. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles if you have one. If you don't have one, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah is a book of the Bible. It's referred to as a prophetic book because Isaiah was a man who was a prophet. Uh, it's found in the Old Testament. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, the passage is printed for you in the worship guide. And this is our second week, or will be our second week in Isaiah chapter 11. Last week, we focused on the first five verses of the chapter. This morning, we are going to focus on verses 6 through 10. And more specifically, last week, we um, kind of came out of this passage with the theme of the branch. That is our overall theme for Advent this season. Um, the, that term, the branch, is used in this passage. We'll, we'll see it again. We'll come back to it. Um, but specifically, Isaiah chapter 11 speaks of a coming king. And we refer to this king as the world's true king. And as we um, look ahead in the biblical story, we understand this king to be Jesus, the one who comes onto the scene um, in the New Testament. Uh, but we looked last week at who he is and what he does. This morning, we're going to talk about the idea, the theme of hope, but we're also going to talk about his kingdom. What does his kingdom look like? What does the kingdom of this world's true king actually look like? So let me read uh, verses 1 through 10 of Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. You're thinking, these are really bad ideas, right? And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be the full, full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Let's take a moment to pray together and ask for the Spirit of God to meet us during this time. Spirit of God, come and dwell with us, your people. We pray that you would instruct us, that you would teach us from your word, and we pray that this would not just be 
head knowledge, that it wouldn't just simply be information, but Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work in our hearts and minds to bring about transformation. And we trust that you are able to do this, whether we find ourselves this morning believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe. You are able to come and reach us and find us and show us hope in new and fresh ways this morning. So do this for the glory of Jesus and for our good, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. There's a philosopher that I really appreciate, and he has this to say ultimately about hope. For centuries, philosophers, theologians, novelists, and artists have described the human predicament and then prescribed a cure. That is, they've offered a prognosis. Hope is the reach of our hearts for the cure. It's the reach of our hearts toward what we think will fulfill us, secure us, save us, and not just us, but the whole world. Hope is the reach of our hearts for the cure. Now, cure for what? That's a legitimate question that you may have this morning, and hopefully we will answer that question as we move through this passage of Scripture together. And like I said, and as you heard from that quote, the theme this morning is hope. And the context for how we're going to talk about this theme is that we're going to look at two primary points from this passage. The first has to do with being honest about the broken realities of life, and the second has to do with soaking ourselves in the hope or good news of redemption. Um, so um, first, admitting, being honest about the broken realities of life, and then second, um, soaking in the good news or hope of redemption. And at the end, we're going to come back and we're going to put all this together and ask the question, how might this passage of Scripture function in the life of faith? What, what should it do? What effect should it have in our lives? So let's start by talking about the importance of admitting or being honest about the broken realities of life. Isaiah was a prophet some 700, and, some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. He was a prophet during a very scary time in Israel's history. You see, up to this point in Israel's history, they had been divided into two factions, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So they were accustomed to conflict and hostility and to corruption. That is ultimately what brought about this faction uh, in the first place. But now, currently, for Isaiah in his day, in his time, he looked at the on the horizon to the east, and looming was the threat of the mighty Assyrians coming to invade Israel. So this is the political, historical context of Isaiah, this man writing uh, these prophecies, um, one of which is the chapter we're looking at this morning. Now, for Israel, they looked back on their history, and there was much glory in their history. Um, going back to uh, the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then um, the glory of the kingdom under uh, David and Solomon. And so you have to, to think that 
during these moments of tragedy, during these moments of tension and conflict, they couldn't help but to look back and wish and long for things to be the way they were back there. Do you know that dynamic, that uh, pattern in your own life? When things get really hard, when things are dark, when you are disturbed for whatever the reasons may be, you find yourself looking back and trying to pinpoint the glory days. They may not have so much have seemed like the glory days back there, but in your current situation, your current circumstances, they sure seem like the glory days now, right? Of course, Israel would have been doing that themselves. But Isaiah is unflinching. He is unwilling to be dishonest. He's unwilling to lie. He's unwilling to sugarcoat and to romanticize. Instead, Isaiah speaks direct truth, even though it may be hard to hear. Of course, the people of Israel would have liked to have heard, don't worry about Assyria. They're not a big threat. They're not a big deal. God is going to intervene. He's going to save you from the threat of the Assyrians. But Isaiah doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He says, Assyria is coming. Jerusalem will be burned. The temple will be destroyed. And survivors will be deported. And help will not come. Man, tough to swallow, huh? Hard news to receive or hear. But Isaiah's commitment, called by God himself, is to speak truth to not water it down, to not sugarcoat, to not romanticize, but to speak truth as it is. And of course, as you might imagine, Israel also had to wonder, is this the end? Is this the end of us, God's people? Is this the end of God's mission through his people? Is this where it all ends? What about the ancient promises of God promising to bless us and through us the entire world. The crisis that Israel found themselves in brought all of these questions to the forefront. In the same way, when we find ourselves in moments of crisis and tension and darkness, it brings all kinds of hard questions to the forefront as well. Now, I said last week that Isaiah 10, the chapter before this, concludes by portraying the destruction of human arrogance. And what imagery is used for that? It's the, the, felling of a, the falling of a vast forest. And so that's where we pick up here in Isaiah chapter 11 with Isaiah's prophecy here. Israel has been reduced to a stump. What is a stump? Well, a stump is that really annoying thing in your yard that you constantly are tripping over. It's that annoying thing that you wish that when you had the tree removed, you would have had them just grind up the stump as well, but maybe that cost a little bit too much. I've never had this done, so maybe that's not the case. But stumps are not something that we spend much time thinking about, and when we do, uh, we don't associate positive thoughts with tree stumps, right? They're the things that we trip over, the things that we wish would go away, This is what uh, Isaiah is describing. He's saying that Israel has been reduced to this thing, to a stump. A stump is also a memory of what came 
before. Think about a tree. This uh, tree, figuratively, that Isaiah is talking about, we might imagine that it was once a tree that was a home to birds, or a tree that provided shade to those who were too warm, or those who were weary. Maybe it was a tree in which children climbed and played. Maybe it provided delicious food for people, fruit for people to eat. Maybe it did all of these things. It's a memory of what once was, what used to be. But now it's dead and gone. It's merely a stump. Imagery of a tree that has been cut down. No signs of vitality of life as we begin here in chapter 11. What is Isaiah doing? Isaiah is being honest about the true condition, the true state that Israel finds itself in. He's speaking honestly about the broken realities of life. And we too need to be honest about the broken realities of life. We too need to admit them, to name them, to be willing to call them out. But that's hard. It's scary. I mean, maybe for some of us, it's easier than others. But what I want to get at is this proneness that we have to sugarcoat, to romanticize, to pretend that we or the world around us is okay when it is not okay. You ever find yourself doing that? Why is it that we do that? Could be because we want to project in terms of ourselves. We want to project ourselves as strong, as having it all together. But it also could be that we are too afraid of the darkness of really going below the surface to wrestle with, to struggle with, to examine these broken realities of life. And so instead, we distract ourselves. Instead, we get caught up in the hustle and bustle of the season. You know what I'm talking about? I think we're all prone to this sort of thing. When we do this, I want you to consider what the implications might be, and, and not even the category of might, but what are the implications at times in your life when you do this? I speak for myself that when I sugarcoat, when I romanticize the broken realities of life, when I pretend like they don't exist or they're not as bad as they actually are, it, it damages my ability to really engage just with life, with the true nature of life. Because when we retreat from what is true, inevitably, we are entering more deeply into falsehood. And the dynamic of this is that when we do that, we start to actually become confused about what is true and what is not, what is real and what is not. What, what is not. And so what we do, this projection of ourselves as strong, of having it all together, even though that's not the case, we actually begin to believe it. We actually begin to think that we, maybe we do have it all together. So this prevents or, or really hinders our ability to engage with the true nature of life. But I, I also want to say this, that if you pretend as though the fall didn't happen, if you pretend that the broken realities of life aren't really that big of a deal, you are prone to romanticism. 
Now, I'm going to say something in a similar way, but obviously it's going to be different um, when it comes to being honest about redemption. But I, I want to say that again for now, that if you pretend as though the broken realities of life aren't really a big deal, you are prone to romanticism. And romanticism, this idea that, oh, happy-go-lucky, everything's okay, it's not that bad, like I said, it takes us into falsehood. It, it moves us further and further from the true nature of life. And so, one of the applications of this, these verses here, just by nature of what Isaiah is doing in the passage, is it's a call to us to admit, to be honest about the broken realities of life. What are those for you this morning? Now, I can't name them for you, but what are those? What are the current broken realities of life in your own life? How is sin your resistance of God's role in your life, how is it manifesting itself? Or how have you been impacted in this season of life by the sin of others? Or how is it just the fallen nature of the world is impacting you and making you tired right now? Where are the areas where you need to be honest about the broken realities of life? And along with that, it might be helpful, it would be helpful for you to, to name those areas where you can detect or identify that you recently have been unwilling to be honest about them and repent of that, meaning to turn away from it and turn toward God. Bring that to God and ask him to give you the strength, the courage to move out of the falsehood and be willing to enter more and more into the true nature of life, even though it may be hard, even though it may be scary, and even though it may lead to a period or season of darkness. Now, if I ended the sermon there, it'd be really bad, right? You'd be depressed. So let's now talk about the need to be honest about redemption. This, I was about to say this is equally important, but this is more important. It's, it's more important to be honest about um, the hope of redemption. All right, back to our, our scripture. I told you that we're focusing on 6 through 10. We're going to get there, but we had this, I, I wanted to set the context again for verses 6 through 10. But back to verse 1 for a moment. The stump, right? This is what Israel has been reduced to. But notice what Isaiah is saying. Notice what he's saying. He's saying, look at that stump. No, no. Again, look. Now, not physically, but with your mind's eye. Imagine. Look closely at the stump. Look hard at it. Concentrate. Focus. What do you see? What's happening? There's a shoot growing out of it. It's not just a dead stump. There's something happening. Even though chapter 10 left us with no signs of the vitality of life, and that's where we pick up here in the beginning, we actually do have a sign. It may be a small sign. It may be hard to see. You may really have to focus and use your imagination, your mind's eye to see it, but it's there. There's a shoot growing out of the stump. If you pretend as though redemption isn't real, you are prone to cynicism. So we said that if you pretend like the broken realities of life aren't real, you're prone to romanticism. But if you pretend as though redemption isn't real, 
you are prone to cynicism. Last night uh, during Indwell, during the open sharing time, Bethany Roberts captured this very well. Um, she, she described the, the proneness of her own heart to uh, just give in to the darkness, to allow herself to be swallowed by it. But she knows that that, that can't be, that, that can't happen because redemption is real. And so there has to be this pull on the other side. And that's why we so desperately need to soak in and meditate on the good news and hope of redemption. Look closely at the stump. So what, it, what, it, what is the stump or what are the stumps currently in your life, those broken realities of life? Look closely. No, look again. Seriously, look again. Examine it from every angle. Is it possible that there's a shoot? Is it possible that there's a sign of vitality of life? It may be small. It may be meager in this moment. But could it be there? Focus. Look again. Look closely. Isaiah says, and a branch from his roots, the stump of Jesse. Um, Jesse was um, the, the father of David, grandfather uh, of Solomon. And again, this takes us back to somewhat of the glory days of Israel. And what Isaiah is doing is he's basically highlighting that this is not the end of God's people. It may seem like it in the moment, but this is not the end. There's a sign of hope. There's a glimmer of hope. You can see it if you look closely. A branch from its roots shall bear fruit. So we've gone from this shoot to now this talk of a branch that is bearing fruit. The branch will bear fruit. What kind of fruit? What does it look like? Another way of asking this question, what does God's kingdom look like? So last week we asked the question, who is this true king, Jesus? Uh, What does he do? What is his kingdom like? What does it look like? Well, what we're provided with, the reason that Isaiah provides us with this political, historical context is because he wants to set the stage for the impact of verses 6 through 10. And I think this is another key point. We think that when we deny the broken realities of life, that somehow that we are actually finding the cure. You know, the hope is that we're reaching for the cure. And we think that by um, sweeping under the rug, by denying, by sugarcoating, by romanticizing it, that we are actually finding the cure. But that's only temporary because what happens? True life eventually catches up with you. You're reminded of what is real. You can't escape it. It's there. It's true. It's real. And so we have to come back to the good news and the hope of redemption because it's then, if we've dealt honestly and really with the broken realities of life, we actually are able to have a deeper and more fuller appreciation of redemption. This is an image of hope as we move into verses 6 through 10 after desolation, of life after death of light shining into darkness, of something coming from nothing. This is a word of encouragement for us. No matter how bleak, no matter how discouraged you are, God is not finished. 
shoots come out of stumps. There is a new king, and he has a new kingdom. Let's look at this kingdom. Verse 6. Remember, we said that these, these, all these things seem like really bad ideas, at least to our uh, experience um, in the world as we live it now. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. What do we have here? We have predatory animals um, living in harmony with animals who are typically preyed upon. Isaiah is taking us into a vision of harmony, of unity, of flourishing. And he goes on, The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Yikes, right? Isaiah is being extreme on purpose here. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's And I love verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the glory, the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. This past Friday night, uh, over at the third place, which is a ministry of ours at City Church, uh, we had an art opening, our annual uh, ornament show. And I was there for maybe an hour, and in that span of an hour, I had two different separate conversations with neighbors who are not connected to a church. Um, And both of these uh, conversations I found very fascinating, because very quickly they went very deep and got us into really the heart of this sermon. We found ourselves very quickly talking about the broken realities of life. In the one case, it was just generally about violence uh, in our country. And in the other case, it had to do with unjust housing systems in our city. Um, Very quickly, we landed on these topics. And what was obvious to me is that these two individuals were talking honestly. They were admitting they were recognizing the broken realities of life. But what I saw behind that was longing. I literally could sense it. I literally could hear it in their voices. When it came to these specific examples, they wanted something better. They held out hope, the cure for something else, right? Something better. It was so obvious. In the moment, I felt like I was on holy ground in a sense. Because what we were doing together, whether those two individuals knew it or not, is that we were longing for the kingdom of the Messiah. We were longing for the kingdom of the true king, of Jesus himself. We're longing for a kingdom that sounds exactly like this. What does Isaiah say? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Advent is about waiting. That's the theme of the Advent season. Advent trains us in the discipline of waiting. None of us like to wait. Waiting is hard. Uh, As I think about it, um, I'm embarrassed, actually, by my lack of patience and my inability to wait in so many different instances. You know, whether it be going through a a drive-through or standing in line at a checkout, 
I start to like freak out internally when things are taking too long. And the reality is, is that it's probably going to take a minute longer than maybe I originally anticipated. And in the grand, not even the grand scheme of things, in the small scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal. But everything inside of me is just saying, let's go, let's go. We all have to be somewhere. Waiting is hard. And this is why the Advent season is such a gift to us, if we're willing um, to respond to it. Because it requires us, it asks us to slow down, to wait, to come to grips with our spiritual inability, our inability in so many different ways in life, and to recognize ultimately that we are in need. I think of those conversations I had on Friday night. And I I think about how important the work of each of these individuals is in our city. But I also wonder if they are carrying a burden that they were not meant to carry. And what I mean by that is I wonder if they feel like they must bring this about, that it is up to them, that they have to do this. And what I would uh, just hope you to think about, because maybe you fall into that trap this morning as well, what I want you to help you think about is that th- this is nothing new. As human beings, we've been longing for something better and seeking to work toward it throughout human history. And where has that led us? That's a hypothetical question for you to think about. You know, that now I'm not, I'm, you're, hopefully this will come together and it'll make more sense in a few minutes. I'm not saying to not give ourselves to helping make the world a better place. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that when we think it is up to us, when we carry that burden, it will inevitably lead to exhaustion. And if we are honestly observing the broken realities of life, it will lead to hopelessness. Because we cannot eradicate the broken realities of life. We cannot. They will be with us until the end. The biblical story informs us of that. But last night, also at Indwell, uh, also during the open sharing time, it was funny with the open sharing time, we had four or five people come up on their own and share And they did such an amazing job that I was thinking, everyone else probably thinks that I set that up, that I had reached out to them and said, all right, you know, come up during the open sharing time. So I I didn't say a word to anyone, but it was as though they all had written out presentations that were so eloquent. Um, And Jim Leonard shared with us this idea of Advent. But he talked about how Advent does not involve passive waiting. It involves an active waiting. So during Advent, we are passive in a sense, but ultimately, Advent is to lead us to action. It's to lead us uh, to live under God's good role and to bear witness to his kingdom in the world. And we can do that in power and strength that doesn't come from us. Because this kingdom... This world that each and every one of us deep down inside longs for is a world that is ultimately brought about by the world's true king. Through his strength and power, but also through his weakness. 
You see, this is what makes Jesus, the world's true king, unique. When we think of all of the kings and rulers and presidents uh, of the world, um, we tend to associate them with grasp for power and for strength. Jesus, on the other hand, had all of the power and all of the strength in the universe. And yet, how did he use his power and his strength? He came to us in weakness, to live among us, to die a sacrificial death on our behalf so we might be restored to harmonious relationship with God the Father. And he rose again to secure the birth of a new world in the future. You see, this kingdom, as God's people, the new world that we long for, yes, we work toward it, but we recognize that it's ultimately brought about through the work of Jesus. It's his work. As we look back at the earlier verses, what sets Jesus apart? What sets this world's true king apart? The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You see, God's spirit, the fullness of his spirit, rests upon the world's true king, empowering, enabling him to do what we all want to see done in this world. And so we're provided in this vision with a picture of reconciliation of old hostilities, the allaying of old fears, a change in the very order of things, the curse of sin, of brokenness is, is lifted, it, it's, it's removed. Imagine this, no cancer, no illness, no ruined relationships. This is the world's true king who brings this about. And we are reminded of that in verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, it's taking us back to this one who will come from that root, from, from that line, ultimately from the Davidic Line who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. And so notice this, it's now focusing on a singular person. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. You see, a hope for Jesus is a hope for a new world because he is the one who is actually able to bring it about. And this picture that Isaiah provides for us is one of both individual salvation, but also the remaking of the world as we know it. How can this or how should this passage function in the life of faith? Well, so the context here is that as God's people, we we have to recognize that a catastrophe has occurred. A tragedy has occurred. We are separated from our good beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, creation, shalom, the fullness of how things are meant to be, but we're also separated from our good ending as God's people. That picture in Revelation chapter 21, when God descends to bring heaven to earth, to bring about unity and harmony, and God will dwell with us the way that it was meant to be, we find ourselves in the middle, right? Separated from our good beginning, separated from our good ending. We find ourselves in the middle of a mess. So how might a passage like this function in the life of faith? Well, I think it does two things. It helps us, first of all, to recover our memory of the past, and then it helps to to fuel imagination for the future. It helps to recover memory of the past. What I mean by that is that 
the vision that Isaiah provides us with is a vision of how it was meant to be in the beginning. This world that we read of in verses 6 through 10 is the world that God desires. It's the world that God intended in the first place. We say it this way uh, in our, oh, we don't have it in our worship guide right now because we have a description of Advent, but we, it, 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 how do we say it? Um, in the beginning, God made people, places, and things to be glorious and whole, but all is not well. We've run away from God, making a mess of his good world. This is a picture of how God intended it to be in the beginning, but we have ruined it through our rejection of God, our running away from him. And this seems so, like we've talked about, distant from us. But it is a reminder of how it was meant to be. So it helps to recover our memory of the past. And this resonates with us. It does for all of us as human beings. Because every one of us, the Bible tells us, is made in the image of God. We are image bearers of God the Father. And by virtue of being made in the image of God, I want to suggest to you that deep down inside of us, somewhere it's there, there's this distant memory of our good past. Why is it that, take my two neighbors, for example, you know, why is it that on the one hand they say, oh, unjust housing um, systems, that doesn't matter, and on the other hand, violence doesn't matter? Those, those responses would not be natural, right? We, we would say that those aren't natural human responses, but our natural response, our natural inclination is to be able to say, no, that's not right. That's not how it should be. Why is that? How is it that we have this standard? I suggest to you because deep down inside, the image of God is there. The image of God is, it gets distorted, it gets scarred, it gets polluted through sin, all of those things, but it remains in every one of us. And along with that comes, I would say, a distant memory of our good past. That we have this sense that we were not made for this. We were made for so much more. We were made for something better. And so as we meditate on this passage, it has this function of being able to help us to recover their memory of our past, but it also helps to fuel imagination for the future. When you go on vacation or when you look forward to a big event, event that you have been looking forward to, what is it that you tend to do? I know that I tend to imagine a lot. I daydream. I, I think about the, the being on vacation in those moments and some of the things that might be happening, some of the things that I may be doing. Or if it's that big event, I imagine being at that event and soaking in the glory of it. When it comes to these kinds of things in life, we imagine, don't we? We imagine what it could be like. And I think that's one of the functions that this passage is meant to have, to fuel our imagination, to fuel our ability to think about what if, what if the world actually looked like this? What if the world became truer to its original intentions? Now, like I said, we cannot bring this about in our own strength and power, and we will not, unfortunately, see the fullness of this in this life. We must wait upon the discipline of waiting for God to return to us in Jesus, to make all things new, for us to experience it all in its fullness. But it doesn't mean that we can't see glimpses, and it doesn't mean that as God's people that we may be the means of others 
seeing those glimpses. This is the promise of the birth of a new world. And as God's people, we get to participate and play a part in the birth of this new world. Now, again, prefaced by everything I just said. And so I want to urge you, I want to encourage you, particularly during this Advent season and beyond, to imagine people, places, and things flourishing in the gospel. That's what this is. That's our vision statement, by the way, that I just stated, so you know. But that's what this is. This is a a, a picture, a vision of people, places, and things flourishing in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, Imagine this. Soak in this. Meditate on it. Because as you do so, first, you will be more prone to worship and give God the glory that, he, that he's due because he is the one who intends this and he is the one who will bring it about. But also, the more that you meditate on it, the more that you live at home with passages like this, you will find yourself increasingly becoming a person who lives under the rule of this kind of kingdom, the peaceable kingdom. You will become a person of peace. You will become increasingly a person who reflects and represents God's rule to a world that is dying to see it and to experience it. I want to conclude by looking at Luke chapter 4. Did Jesus think that he was the world's true king? Did Jesus see himself as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies? Well, in Luke chapter 4, there are a few scenes that happen, two scenes that I want to um, draw your attention to. At the very beginning of Luke chapter 4, we have what is referred to as the temptation of Jesus. Jesus, before launching his public ministry, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days where he is tempted by the evil one, by Satan himself. And with each temptation, Jesus resists. This is powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. Because in every moment of Jesus resisting, Jesus is reversing the curse. He's reversing human rebellion. And he's seeking to ultimately move in the direction of bringing blessing to that which has been cursed and felt the effects of the curse. But Jesus comes out of this temptation, having not resisted, having been successful in the face of the temptations of the evil one. And then immediately after this, it says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. That's not coincidental. Jesus proves himself to be the true human being, the divine one who is able to overcome and resist sin. And then suddenly we get this note that he goes into Galilee with the power of the Spirit. And we know that he begins to teach. He eventually begins to heal and all of these things. But in the power of the Spirit, remember Isaiah chapter 11? How did it describe this world's true king? As one who is anointed with the fullness of the Spirit. And then that brings us to Jesus coming to his hometown of Nazareth. He stands up. This is where he was brought up. So just for context, imagine this. And as was his custom, Luke tells us that he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, well, 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 just happened to be given to him. You think this is coincidental or by chance? So he unrolls the scroll and he finds the place where it was written. Notice, finds the place. He was looking for it and then reads the following words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant and sits down. And as you might imagine, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he says this, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You imagine that? Every single one of the people in that synagogue at that moment would have understood something. They would have understood that this man, this boy that grew up in their hometown, was claiming to be the world's true king. He was claiming to be the one on whom the fullness of God's spirit rested. The one whom would be sent out to heal to preach good news to the poor, to bring about liberty to the captives and to those who are oppressed. All verbiage that is found in Isaiah chapter 61, because that's where he quotes, but all throughout the book of Isaiah, yes, Jesus understood himself to be the world's true king, and he went about his ministry with that identity in mind. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus said. Jesus is saying to you, he's saying to me, I am he. I am the one. I am the one that Israel longed for, desired, waited, anticipated in the Old Testament who came. And I am the one that you today long for, desire, yearn, to return, to remake the world, to make all things new. Advent, yes, is about pointing us to a whole new world, but Advent primarily is about pointing us to Jesus, because where Jesus is present, newness of life is also present. Let's pray. Jesus, life would be so difficult without your word. We would give in to cynicism. We would be swallowed up by hopelessness. So we're really grateful, as we are each and every Sunday, when as your people, we get to receive your word. We're so thankful that you have spoken, that you have not been silent, but you have given us your word, that we might read it, that we might hear it. And we pray now that you would help us to respond by faith. I recognize that there are some who are with us this morning, maybe who have never really exercised true faith in you, Jesus. They maybe have never really seen that you are the world's true king. I pray that you would open their eyes, open their hearts to see you. Give them the faith to receive you. And I pray for all of us that we might respond to this passage of Scripture by soaking in this passage and others like it. I pray that you would fuel our imagination. I pray that you would deliver us from cynicism and hopelessness. 
I pray that you ultimately would fill us with hope and remind us that that cure that we long for has been accomplished by you. You, in your work for us, have cured us of our sin and one day will allow us to experience the fullness of your work as we live in a new world birthed by you. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.